Welcome to the Thinking Leader Podcast, sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, we bring you new ideas and insights from business leaders, military leaders, and thought leaders. Ideas and insights that will help you think more deeply and lead more effectively, so that you can better navigate your complex world. Here again are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker Bryce Hoffman, and former Royal Air Force Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to the show. I am Bryce Hoffman, president of Red Team Thinking and author of the book Red Teaming. I am joined as always by... Hello there, Marcus Dimbleby, Vice President, Red Team Thinking. Great to be back on the show again. We've got another awesome episode for you, Bryce. We have a guest today. I know, another right? guest. I'm so excited. Who do we have on today with us, Marcus? Our guest today is awesome. We have Ellie Cloak. Now, Ellie Cloak is a former wing commander of Her Majesty's Royal Air Force. She's a qualified organizational and business psychologist, and she is the head of the diversity inclusion practice here at Red Team Thinking. And she's a long time colleague of mine. We were in the Royal Air Force together, and I can't wait to hear from her today. Ellie, welcome to the show. Fabulous to have you here. Welcome, Ellie. Oh, thank you very much. I'm sort of slightly nervous now after that introduction. Got to live up to the hype. Awesome. Oh, my goodness. Nothing to be nervous about. <laughs> Nothing to You're be with nervous friends. about. No. Well, there is with you two well, in the room. Generally speaking. Virtual room. We'll be, we'll be on our best behavior. Yeah. Dreading that 3D meetup with you and Bryce. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So where should we begin? Tell us, tell us about yourself, Ellie. Tell, tell our listeners about yourself. Okay. So um, obviously the lovely introduction from Marcus there. So I ended my sort of military career about six years ago now. But if we work backwards from that point, uh, I joined the Royal Air Force when I was 19 years old. Why did I do that? Because I knew going to university would be a waste of my parents' money and my time. I would leave with a third if I was lucky and enlarged liver, but ability to party. So I thought I'd go out and and join the Air Force and get paid for it. <laughs> talk about talk about self awareness. Such an early age yeah, as well. Yeah, very young know. age. <laughs> yeah. um, and why did I join the Royal Air Force? Well, because both my parents were in the Royal Air Force, and it's better than the Army and the Navy. Come on, now, let's be now. honest. Yeah, that's very true. We're not prejudiced yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to our Army and Navy listeners. <laughs> we'll get them on as well. They can have their own back. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Um, and. And so um, I grew up in that sort of lifestyle and just a lack of imagination, I suppose, you know, didn't know what else to do, but I knew that that was a lifestyle that I enjoyed. Um, and sort of having grown up in that environment, I realized that I enjoyed the sort of the constant challenge of moving, the differences, the, I suppose the chance to reinvent myself everywhere I went, which was quite nice, you know, sort of growing up and moving through and, and sort of as you sort of reach those different ages and stages in life, being able to sort of, right, this is who I'm going to be this time when I turn up somewhere. And that was it, really. So service background, Royal Air Force background, joined the Royal Air Force, um, did my 20 plus years, had the most amazing time, um, met some fabulous people and also met Marcus um, and, you know, just around around the bazaars, got some great experiences, got some experiences that 
I never would have expected to get. Found myself in some situations. I was like, crikey, how did I end up here? But Share a situation that you found yourself in, in which you said, crikey. Meeting me by the sounds of it, clearly. Well, the- no, a real situation. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, a real situation. Well, there's two that really stick out. Uh, and one of them was, so if I take them in sort of chronological order. So the first one was we were down in Sierra Leone um, in not in 2000, um, just when the West Side Boys had, uh, were sort of running riot across Sierra Leone and we were in there running the airport. And it was at the time that we'd had uh, some um, army colleagues had been taken hostage, uh, mm. the Royal Anglians. And we were down there and I was running the airfield, um, sort of helping out down there. And uh, it was a, a conversation. We went up to our sort of pseudo headquarters at the time. We were sort of called up to go and have a chat with them. And they said, right, we're going to potentially collapse out of here if it gets a bit too hot and sticky. So what we're going to do is we're going to start collapsing out and we'll collapse back. And obviously you being the air movements team, you're going to be the last to lift off. And we're like, right, okay, okay. Yeah, we can get that, get that. You know, and the aircraft are going to come in and we had a, a few C-130s and they would roll in. And they said, but at some point, and speaking to the C-130 captains, they were like, at some point, it might just be too scotchy to come in. So you're going to have to evacuate another way. And it was like, right, okay. So there was I, I must have been, I don't know, 27, 28. And even though we'd been taught how to sort of fire weapons and bits and pieces like that, it was the first time I'd actually gone out with a magazine attached to my SA-80 and gone with my 2IC. And we had to drive down to the beach to meet uh, some people from uh, another special secret sort of arm of the the sort of military. And um, it was basically to have a conversation around... If we evacuate or if this this is going to be happening, what you need to do is get down here, drive as far as you can in your Land Rovers across the beach, get onto the ribs. And meanwhile, HMS Ocean will be sailing and we'll have to go and catch her up on this rib. And I was sort of stood there going, hmm, how do I find myself in this situation <laughs> talking about this? And I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was like, OK, I've got my four wheel drive license. I can do that. I can handle this. But, you know, just sort of sitting there going. I never expected this to happen. So that was the first one. Fortunately, we didn't have to do that because sort of peace was restored to a level that we were able to continue our operations out there and we were all able to evacuate in the way and come home in the way that we expected to. But yeah, I was just like, I can't do this. And the second one was um, getting lost in Kuwait or Iraq. I still don't know (laughs) which side of the territorial line i was was this before or after we crossed the line of departure oh this was this was after you didn't spearhead the invasion then <laughs> inadvertently incidentally no 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 <laughs> no i arrived a couple of days after that we'd gone over the line of departure but gone up and i'd had to go so i was down in q8 as the uk sort of command base commander for want of a better word and there were some army chaps with me and we had to drive up to um Basra to go and get sort of orders. So things had sort of settled down a bit. And I, again, here we go, assumptions, assumptions being made. Um, I assumed that they'd done this journey a couple of times before. I assumed they'd done the route prep. I assumed I was just going up and I was being driven up. Just had to get in the vehicle at the time with all the correct kit. So body armor and bits and pieces like that. And I'd had a, a sort of a, a spell of quite a few long days and I'd sort of fallen asleep in the back of the the, the car and um, I hadn't thought any more about it. 
and uh, woken up and they'd taken a shortcut or so they thought. And we ended up with a berm sort of like this one side of us running for miles and a fence line the other side. And we had no idea. And we got bogged down in sand. We had no idea where we were. I woke up and I was furious beyond belief because I was like, we have no idea where we are. We could see a, a, a sort of a building with some military people sort of stood around it, but we didn't know whether we were on the Kuwaiti side of the border or the Iraqi side of the border. We had to presume they were friendly, but you could just see the headlight. And I was just sat there going, <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. I've been in country a week. I'm going to get sent home. At least you're asleep in the back and not driving. This is another classic example of men not knowing when to ask for directions. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right? Or, yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's true. That's very true. Um, and, and, you know, my fault, presuming that they did know what they were doing. You know, first, first failure on my part was getting in a, a vehicle with a bunch of blokes that I presumed knew what they were doing or assumed they knew what they were doing because they talked enough bluff and bluster. Absolutely. Assumptions. And I got psyched in by that. Yeah. Assumptions. Yeah, so many, so many made there. But, hey, there you go. So those are my two sort of incidents of finding myself in the military in places that I never expected to find myself. Did you ever expect is... to find yourself as a red teamer with red team thinking? No. No, not Ever, not ever. Um, and we did a bit sort of when I did um, staff college, we did have um, a, an exercise where we had red team, blue team and the white team. And I was I was in the white team. <laughs> Check me out. A lady of colour in the white team. Was I there as tokenism? I don't know. But I was in the white team. So that's a good thing. Um, I got invited in. Um, so, yeah, so the, we, we sort of had a bit there, but we didn't ever really play it as such. And I did do a little bit of red teaming with um, the Royal Navy as they were looking at uh, going back down to the Falklands. We were doing something down there and I played red teaming from an Air Force perspective. Well, started from an sort of onside, this is how we're going to do it. And then sort of, well, I could do this and I could disrupt this and I could disrupt that. But never really did it to any depth or any real analysis um, and of any great benefit, it was more, how could you be a bit sort of controversial? Which, which is unusual for you, isn't it? Because knowing you, uh, you're, you're, you're quite the contrarian. I, I can't deny that fact. And is that something you learned through the military or is that kind of something that you think you were born with or you were nurtured to have through your upbringing? Talk to me about that. A great question. I know, making a think. I, yeah, it is. I think it is around the fact that I was always an outsider. So I was, myself and my brother were often the only black kid in the school. We were the only black kids on the married patch. So we naturally stood out, which therefore I took as permission to just push boundaries all the time just push boundaries all the time i took it that way my brother just wanted to sort of fit in and was very sort of discreet and humble and i think that there might have been a bit of that coming into play that i felt looking the way i did and being the only one i had permission or i gave myself permission to to be that person that. that just says no why because yeah. i was different i gave myself permission i love that 
That's so cool. It is and it's that. so interesting. What a different take, you know, you and your brother took on that. Mm. But still, it must it must have been hard to to be the the one in those circumstances who was different. And then, like you say, you have two choices. You can you can try to cover it up and blend in, or you can embrace it. And yeah, that's such a powerful thing to embrace your difference. So that's quite the the paradox, isn't it? Because not only the only black kid in school and the neighborhood. But you're also now the only contrarian. And we all know that being that lone dissenter is, in, is an awful lonely place and people target you for that. So you've almost got a double target on your back. How, how did that work out for you? There must have been some explosive uh, incidents, I'm guessing, with individuals. Or, or were they, okay, we'll take this. I was a stereotype for a, a number of people. I was a stereotype for a number of people when I was in the military. You know, you're the, you know, the angry black woman. Because at that time, you couldn't be anything but an angry black woman if you stood up and had a voice hmm. and you said your piece. So I, I fitted the mould and, and the um, biases for a lot of people. So that was just, all right, here we go. Here she's off again. There she goes again. You know, here she comes early. She's just going to have a go about something. And and so it, it was a, a blessing and a curse. And... I remember talking to my last boss before I left the Air Force and, and he told me to be a little bit more political with a small P. And I was like, what does that actually mean? I said, because I've been told lots and lots of times through my career, be a bit more political with a small P. I said, what does that mean? And he says, well, you know, you just need to be aware of when you're going in there. He said, you, what you do is you, you get people in a room and he said, and you don't suffer fools gladly. I was like, okay, that's that's a positive because... People are being paid a lot of money and they should be turning up to these meetings knowing more than I do or I can find out in a book. I expect them to turn up as the experts in the room. I said, uh, he said, you go in there and he said, basically, you, you tell them they're all rubbish and they need to do better. And you do that. He said, basically, you burn down bridges and then you rebuild them. And I was like, OK, all right. OK, so perhaps it's a little bit extreme, but funny old thing, people aren't listening to me. So I have to take you know, the nuclear option as such to go, now listen. Uh, and, and so, because I need people to listen to me and they're not listening. And I said, the final thing here is, please tell me that you have never used those particular traits and that behavior to get your dirty work done and give you the results that you need. And this headquarters results you need. And if you can tell me that you've never used them, knowingly use them, for your own end, then I will absolutely go away and reflect on that. And he turned around and he says, no, of course I don't. He said, I use it because you get stuff done. Right. Stuff happens. Exactly. And it's so interesting because you you made the comment, which I love, that you didn't suffer fools lightly. And I don't suffer fools lightly either and can be abrasive as a result, but I'm always chalked up to just being an alpha male or, you know, a bit of an asshole, you know, but as you say, that people filled out a narrative for you based on what you look like that then made that something much bigger than just being, you know, someone who didn't have a lot of patience for BS. Yeah, especially in the military where, you know, you are different. You are, you know, in the minority. So when you walk in a room, it's noticeable. And they've all got those preconceived notions, preconceived ideas 
and expecting you to behave that way. But then they don't listen to you because of their own perspectives of you. And therefore, you do do then fill those preconceived ideas because you have to behave in that way to make them listen. And that's that vicious circle, isn't it? That it's so awful to be in that environment where you know you can you know it's going to happen, and playing it with a small p isn't going to cut it. And you're not going to you're not going to take that. I know that. I remember getting told when I was at one of my bases that um, the uh, the enlisted guys, the enlisted uh, folks, called me. My nickname was Maggie Thatcher. <laughs> I love it. Basically. The Iron Lady. That's what they called Absolutely. me. It was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're like, yeah, you know, get the work done, get out on, you know, when work is done, brilliant on the play, but when, when work is to be done, hard, Iron Lady, got to be done right, got to be done this. And I was like, and that's a bad thing, you know, but it does hurt, you know, sometimes all these sort of spears in these, you know, there was never anything, it never, those those traits were never positive. They were never seen mm. as a positive. They were always highlighted as that's something that you need to change or we'll make allowances for it because you're a black female, you know, we'll let you have that. Um, you've only, and it, it, it sort of even extended to sort of when I first joined up, um, I, you go and have your identity photograph taken. So you have that first photograph and you sort of, have to look at this and it stays with you for years and it's just awful. Um, and I remember going in to have my photograph taken. So we got all our kit, all our kit to get through the first six weeks of officer training. And I, I go up and I go to take my picture, have my picture taken. And the lady, the photographer stood there and she said, I've been here 10 years and you're the first black female I've seen come wow. through. Wow. Really? I was like, okay, that's love. Yeah. And, and I didn't want to hear that because obviously with that comes sort of the expectation well it wasn't an expectation I was just like oh so so what what mm. does that mean okay it doesn't mean anything different because I've been in this situation before but it started to um, manifest itself in positive discrimination which is probably worse than negative discrimination because you're going saying you're putting me forward to do this and I don't want to do it I don't want to do this and you're given opportunity and for a long, long time, a very, very long time, um, probably up until my last four or five years, I never thought I was good enough. I thought I was there because I was the black female, because I was the token in the room. So all that promotion that happened, you were like, I know I'm good enough, but my peers are looking going, oh, it's only because. Wow. It's only because. And I remember one conversation I had at Staff College, so this was 2012, with a colleague and he turned around and said, please don't put yourself forward for that job because I don't stand a chance if you're in the running. And I was like, what's that then? You know, thinking, well, that's good because, you know, I said, we're, we're both here on the same course. We've both got the similar backgrounds, you know, and he said, because you're a black female and you'll get it. And, you know, you just go, Jesus, it's 2012, 2013. Why am I still fighting this? Wow. Why is this still a thing? Still is a thing. Why is yeah. it still a thing? And yeah. it still is a thing. And it still is a thing for a lot of people. And it's it's just sad. It's just sad. You know, it it helped me. You know, I used it for, for whatever. And I, I often joke, you know, my husband's still serving. I often joke, which is people go, he's great. His wife is an absolute witch. You know, she's a hard ass. She's a taskmaster and all this sort of stuff. And and I do sometimes, it because it pervades everything in your life, it's just constantly there. It's constantly seeping. It's constantly, it's constantly, constantly. And, you know, I was laughing the other day and I can't remember if I sent it to you, Marcus. They sort of said there was something about we need more women of colour 
the higher ranks of the military. I was like, bugger. Too early, man. Too early. early. <laughs> you know, I could be there. You could have been air marshal. Absolutely. I could be there. You could have been senior than your husband. How fun would that be? Oh, my Lord. Well, I was. I was a couple of times. But you know what I mean? You just have those moments of going, ah. But then, so that was sort of a reaction. But then the reaction was just like, we don't want, a lot of us don't want to be singled out like that. I want to know I've got there because I'm bloody good enough to get there. But when you have this quota to fill and it's happening all the time, it doesn't matter whether you're a black female, sometimes you're just female, whether you are transgender, whether you are a homosexual, you know, it doesn't matter. We're starting to put these boxes around people and putting them forward. And of course, that just creates resentment elsewhere with because people just want a level playing field. That's, That's so all true, we want. And that goes to this whole DNI tick box agenda that we spoke of and we've seen with you know some previous clients before and how we want to try and change that. Because as you said, the the, the impact it has on people, yeah. it, it's just so immeasurable. It's 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 vast and people don't realise. And as you said, and it's with you all the time. And it's not just it's not just one impactful thing. It's the little things that just build up and up and up and. I remember meeting you and I got to the base in 2007 and you walked in my office and I didn't look up and go, oh, it's a black woman. Didn't even enter my mind. I just heard you walk in. You're right, mate. Right. What are you doing? Here's the deal. I'm Ellie. And me and you just used to have the best conversations and it was almost meet my opposite in female form and, you know, coming together and, you know, facing into the challenges we saw on the station supporting each other with the frustrations we had and it was just never a thing you know not not whether you were black whether you were a woman no. i didn't care you you were my colleague you were my mate you're my friend you're my fellow contrarian and none of that other stuff even entered my mind ever and so many people can't no. appreciate or see that i want to go back to something that you said that i think is really important though which is the the idea of diversity and inclusion versus just diversity. Mm. And it mm. seems to me that a lot of times people, organizations do a good job with one, but not the other. We've heard that from, from some of our clients we've worked with. And I know you've heard it from some of our clients that you've worked with. And I just wonder if mm. you could talk a little bit about the difference between diversity and inclusion. Yeah. So for me, diversity is having all the boxes checked at a, a at a meeting. So, you know, I've got one black one, one white one. I've got, you know, one of them, one of them. I've got one of them. I've got one of them, one of them. Tick, tick, tick. And so you, you meet that surface level target, don't you? To sort of say, yes, we're a diverse organization. And you, you tick for your inherent, you know, diversity, things that people come with, people show up with. But actually, what we do is we hire on acquired diversity. So that experience, that lived experience, that educational background, whatever it might be, that's what we hire for. But actually, we only ever go down the uh, sort of inherent diversity route and tick those. And in doing so, we don't we, we, we are so not inclusive. The, the, you know, inclusive, being inclusive is about making sure that people can belong and be free to speak up and bring everything that they have, their whole being to the party. And, you know, a lot of times we talk about belonging and what is belonging. Actually, it means different things to different people. But if you were to flip that and look at it the other way, which is what's it feel like to be excluded? 
every single one of us has had that moment of being yeah. excluded and think about the behaviours and the things that you do to get into the in-group. So whether you take yourself back to school and go, do you know what? I sort of laughed a bit harder or I took that extra risk just to get noticed and be sort of visible to the cool group or whatever it might be, or, or just the in-group because you want to get in because you are excluded. Well, that translates also into the workplace. Right. So people bring those behaviours because they just want to be recognised, acknowledged, included. And when you're excluded, we all do things. Just think back to your childhood of the, you know, oh, I'll go and do this and I'll take that extra risk or I'll, I'll creep, you know, I'll suck up to that person over there to get myself in. I will, I'll bring them sweets or whatever it might be. That still plays out in, in the workplace in different ways, but it's still there. It's still the underlying childish behaviors and the childish traits. And actually, when you are excluded from something, it does take you back to your first experience of that. And you go through all that again and you it's just horrible, you know, being excluded or not being included and not being used for your experience and your thought. Because actually, it doesn't really matter. You know, we talk about diversity again and we talk about those bits, that, you know, the, the, the color, the sort of um, the sexuality, the this, the that, the other. But actually, you know. Demographics, generations is now a diversity that we need to be including in sure. how we look at the workplace. You know, what, there's four, potentially five generations in the workplace. How often do we only focus on one coming in to the exclusion of another? So perhaps the people at the sort of the twilight years of their career, well, we'll sideline them because they're not going to be in the workplace any longer, but they've got a huge amount to bring to any party and what they should be included as well. So it's not only the the real sort of touch points of diversity that we have. We need to think about the other things as well, about the generational demographic that is now coming in to be a diverse, you know, being a diversity that needs to be brought in. And how do we make sure we include everybody in that? So for me, inclusion is about how you get people to to share their experiences, tell their story from their perspective, just see somebody else's perspective, just listen, just ask them, ask a question, listen. That's all you need to do, which are fundamentals of red team thinking, obviously. Absolutely. And I think that's such an important point that you've raised there, which is that it's not just the individual that suffers when diversity is just reduced to tokenism. It's the organization. Because diversity is such a powerful thing when it's leveraged, when it's tapped into, when those different experiences, those different perspectives, those different backgrounds are brought to bear on a problem. That's a powerful thing. And yet we've heard many times with, with organizations that we've worked with that people say, we have diversity in our team. But those of us who are on the team who are diverse are not listened to. It's still yeah. the stale, pale males that are making the decisions. It's still those guys that are doing all of the talking in the meetings. And so I think we've all seen a real opportunity to use the red team thinking tools to actually pry open that door and let people with diverse perspectives be heard, will let everybody's voice be heard because the best idea can't win if nobody ever hears it. 
Absolutely. And as we remember this last week, we had a client and we were talking about this exact topic and he turned around and he said, diversity without inclusion is delusion. And I thought that that, that just summed up pretty much all the people we spoke to have got issues with this, where, you know, when you think about it, diversity, it goes to about what you were saying, Bryce, it's this art of thinking independently, but together. That's all we're trying to achieve, isn't it? It's bringing all these diverse backgrounds together, thinking on their own, but fusing that to some bigger thing, a bigger capability. And that's why we talk about diversity of thought. You know, that's what an organization needs to be successful to thrive in this VUCA world, this volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. But if you don't allow that, if you don't enable that, and you do it for all the wrong reasons, as you said, like if you're just ticking boxes but not allowing inclusion. And I remember we, we spoke to a client last year and we got chatting with them. It's like, hey, so you're obviously part of this diverse workforce. How are you feeling? Um, you know, my heart went out. They just said, Marcus, I feel like I'm pure tokenism. And it goes back to what Ellie was feeling back in the Air Force those many years ago. It's just like, I'm here for the sake of being here. I'm not included. My voice isn't heard. And it's like, it's so it's so rewarding to then be able to enable them with these tools and techniques to allow people to have that voice, often anonymously, because then you do see the power, but you don't know where it's come from, which is that first stage. That's a conscious thing, too, because when red teaming was developed in the U.S. military, one of the things that the the folks who were creating this new methodology were thinking about was how to encourage diversity of thought. And there's all sorts of kind of origin stories where some of the, the red team thinking tools and perspectives come from. And one of the most powerful ones was the story of the 11th attack helicopter regiment during the invasion of Iraq. And I was told this story by the colonel, one of the colonels who helped develop red teaming for the U.S. Army. And he said this story was really formative in his ideas on how to create this kind of culture of looking at things from different perspectives, hearing every voice and creating tools to enable that, which is what really red teaming is all about. So the story was he was he was the the number two intelligence officer uh, for the coalition during the invasion of Iraq. And in the final days of the planning of the invasion, there was a, a session where they got together to talk about the plans for sending U.S. Apache helicopters deep into Iraq to attack the Republican Guard tank division before they could engage coalition forces. And in this meeting, there were a couple of generals, few colonels, few lieutenant colonels, and there was one woman who was just a lieutenant. And she was Army. She wasn't. She didn't have wings. There was a bunch of folks in there with 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 helicopter wings or some Air Force folks in there. And they had the sandboxes up and they had the little models of the Apache helicopters on sticks and they were showing how cool it was going to be, how they were going to go in and they were going to fly through all these valleys and they were going to stay below the Iraqi radar and they were going to end up and they were going to pounce in mass on the Republican Guard tank division and annihilate it. And they predicted that they were going to have no losses because they were going to have wild weasels flying in front of them uh, doing anti-radar missions and taking out all the Iraqi surface-to-air sites. And they were going to have complete surprise and they were just going to wipe the table clean. 
and they congratulated themselves. They said, this is going to be epic. And then she spoke up. Then she spoke up and she said, but what about small arms fire? And everybody looked at her with a look like, who the hell let you in the room? And the person who told me the story who was in the room said that the senior general basically said words to the effect of, are you a helicopter pilot? No, I didn't think so. Okay, why don't you go and sit in the corner, young lady in color, while the adults are speaking? But she persisted. She was like you, Ellie. She had the, the, the courage to embrace the role of being the outsider. And so she said, I just think we need to look at this. It's not something you've talked about. And they said, look, these Apaches are armored. They can't be taken out by small arms fire. She said, I understand that. But what about massed small arms fire? What about concentrated fire? What if instead of all these Iraqi soldiers, you know, firing wildly with their AK-47s into the sky, they coordinated their efforts and concentrated their fire on a single helicopter, one helicopter at a time. Couldn't that do something? And again, they said, look, did you not hear us the first time? We're the pilots. We're the, we're, we're the folks who know this. You're a lieutenant who has never been in combat, who's never flown a helicopter. We got this. And so she, she said, okay, fine. She sat down. So the invasion comes. The 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment takes off. It starts flying through the valleys at below radar level in the middle of the night, just as planned. And everyone's thinking it's going swimmingly. And then something starts to happen. The pilots start radioing back saying, hey, something weird's going on. Every time we go over an Iraqi town, all the lights go off for just a few seconds and then they turn on. And they're like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting. And then a few minutes later, pilots started radioing saying, hey, every one of these towns we're going through, there's guys on the rooftops with cell phones and they're pointing at us and, they're, and they seem to be talking to their cell phones. They're like, okay, well, that's no problem. We're taking out, you know, as the, as the wild weasels are up front, taking out all the surface terror missiles. You guys have nothing to worry about. Okay. They got to, to where the Republican guards were. They came through the, the, the pass and into the valley where they were lying in wait, where they were going to shoot them like fish in the barrel. And all of a sudden, the radios just went crazy at headquarters with pilots screaming, I'm blind. I'm blind. I can't see. I've got my night vision scopes taken out. My radar is out. I, you know, my engines hit. All of these, these pilots just, just coming on the comms with just these tales of how the, you know, even though not a single bullet was taking down a helicopter, the concentrated fire was blowing up their sensors, was taking out their, their cracking their windscreens. Some of them were getting hit in the engine. And in fact, we lost two Apaches. They went. They were shot down by small arms fire. The 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 pilots were captured and paraded on television uh, by Saddam Hussein's forces. But even worse than that, the Eleventh Attack Helicopter Regiment destroyed not a single Iraqi tank, not one tank, and a huge percentage 
of the helicopters returned to base with so much damage that they were out for the rest of the war. About 40%, if I recall the number, of the Apaches were out of commission for the rest of the war because they had sustained so much damage from this small arms fire. And all of this could have been avoided if somebody had listened to this young lieutenant when she spoke up. But because they were looking at her as this young girl in the room who didn't know anything, they didn't pay attention. So one of the key principles of red team thinking is to create ways of allowing people to share their ideas anonymously so that you can consider the ideas independently of the source. That's essential, isn't it? It's a young female, no wings, instant dismissal of thought, where it's that diversity of thought that she brought to the actual room, which would have saved, you know, the mission failure. So, and I'm sure Ellie's going to tell us lots more stories about that after the break. Shall we uh, take a refill and we'll come back afterwards and catch up again? Does your organisation have a red team culture? Is it an innovative, learning and resilient culture that is continually improving, continually adapting, and continually evolving to meet the new challenges and opportunities each day brings? Or is it reactive, siloed and hamstrung by command and control leadership that doesn't like to be challenged or questioned? Does your organization encourage diversity of thought and ensure that everyone's voice is heard? Or does it silence dissent and promote those who toe the line? Take our free assessment and find out how your organization rates there's a link to it in the notes below. Let's see how you score. So, Ellie, during the break, we were continuing to talk about uh, the 11th Attack Helicopter Regiment story. And you had some really interesting thoughts on that that I, I, I'd love for you to share. Yeah, so... It sort of took me straight back to, I could, not in the same sort of hot environment, operational environment, but sort of, I could imagine how that young lady was feeling. So you will have, when things like that happen, you, it has an emotional impact. You you either become angry or you feel helplessness. You're just there going, oh, not being listened to. You have a sort of a physiological reaction where you sort of either get stressed by it or you go into the next your next experience or the next time you experience something similar those feelings come flooding back and you either get yourself stressed wound up or you, you know you shut down or you go overboard you have a cognitive impact which is you know am i imagining this am i seeing things am i being oversensitive so all these things are happening and they happen every single time that that something like this happens and then you'll have the behavioral impact which would be like right i either play up to the stereotype of I'm just the girl in the corner that doesn't really know, but I can put something in and make it, you know, and you play up to a stereotype that you don't want to play up to because you want to be there on an equal footing because you've got something useful to contribute to the conversation. And and every time you have an encounter like that, it just bleeds into the next experience and the next one and the next one. And, and you just start to shut down and you just go, what's the point? And actually, when you do have that anger and that feeling of helplessness, and it, something and, and what you predicted comes true, you never want to be in that position of saying, yeah. I told you so, because it's a horrible p situation to be in. And you don't need to be there. That's the worst bit is you don't need to be there. It could have all been prevented if only. And that's a frustration, isn't it? And that's where I, I think we, we see real 
light bulb moments with a lot of our clients where they're, they're using them. You know, we tell them all this in the boot camp and the initial overview, but then when they start using it and they see it and feel it more than anything, it's that feeling it. You almost see that speed bump that they get over and then the acceleration that comes following that. So we, we've covered the military. We've covered your childhood. Let, let's time jump forward to a pub in London by the river, early December 2019, you and I met up again. Fabulous to see you then. Big beaming face walked in the uh, the room and we had some great conversation and I informed you what I was up to with this other gentleman on the call with us today, Mr. Hoffman himself. Indeed. And uh, tell me about that day, Ellie, because it's the, it was the start of the beginning for us and why we're all here now. Indeed. So it was a well, fabulous to meet up. And I think you bought me the beers, which is always good. It's always good. So getting a Yorkshireman to put his hand in his pocket. It's fantastic. Oh. Um, so. <laughs> oh, cuts me deep. Talk about stereotypes. Yeah. I know, right? Go. Twice today now. Yeah, Twice. exactly. I'm just notching these up now. There exactly. you go. That's two. Go on. <laughs> who needs who more? Well, there we go. We just, we're, just, we're just cannon fodder. I feel like that attack helicopter right now. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. So we met in the pub and you started talking about this opportunity that was coming your way uh, to work with this gentleman called Bryce Hoffman that had written this book called Red Teaming. And it was, have you ever heard of it? I was like, no. And uh, I promptly came home, ordered it on Amazon. Ah, oh, I owe you commission, you Marcus. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it was more the the opportunity and what it could do and and where it was going to go, which interested me initially. I was like, wow, this is this is something very different. And so I liked the sound of it. And then when I'd read the book, and I did genuinely, I sat down, picked up the book, and I couldn't put it down. It had pencil marks on it. It had, you know, sticky notes stuck in it. I was like, my goodness me. So I put it down. And then I had another conversation with you, Marcus. And you were like, come along and try. Come along and have a go at this. And it was the first time I had ever felt uh, at my most natural and everything just hit. You know, if you were to have a one arm bandit, every single cherry came up because it hit on every single level, not just the training, but the concept behind it and what it was doing. And it, it's, I love it. Yeah, I've told you this before. Um, when I don't red team, my kids are like, I love red team, please, because you're happier. Grumpy and, mom. Know, even, even my husband's, yeah, grumpy mom, do red teaming because you're a nicer person. And my husband sort of said this morning, he said, you come in from work you know, your day job. And he says, you're down here. He says, you sort of come in and you're sort of dragging your feet. He says, you do red teaming. He says, you are up here and I cannot get you down for hours afterwards because you're buzzing. Oh, I love it. And he said, I don't know what it does, but carry on doing it. <laughs> you know, so, um, and it's, it's just what it gives you. So if I'd have had this capability when I was in the military, I think I would have been a better officer. And the reason is, it just gives you the tools, the techniques to pause, think, pose the right question to get the right response. That's the biggest thing for me, is it you, you're able to just take the emotion out of something. You, you recognize that where you're entering the conversation from. You're able to sort of turn around and go, actually, hang a second. 
am I am I looking at this in a different way? And and I think the biggest thing is red team thinking. It allow it. it it demands that you're you're curious. It demands that you have that childlike wonder of asking why. And why? God, being a grown up is so dull sometimes. So the ability to go and play and be a child again is brilliant and we should all embrace it. So even if you just take it for that, you know, I'm allowed to ask why. I can be curious. I can be a little bit sort of edgy, yeah. a little bit spicy over here just going, oh, what does that mean? What does that mean? And you're allowed to do it. It gives you permission. It gives you permission to explore all those sides of you and get that thinking out that you're not normally allowed to do because the environment, the workplace constrains you because you have to act in a certain way. It's freedom. It's freedom. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because, you know, as you know, my favorite word is why. And and it was my favorite word when I was a kid. And uh, I know it was your favorite word when you were a kid. Marcus, and I, probably yours as well, Ellie. And that's the thing is that when we're kids, we have this natural curiosity. We have this desire to understand the world, to unpack the world, to not just accept things at the surface level, but to dig deeper and to get to root causes, to get to first principles, to get to the underlying issues of what we're dealing with. And that's so powerful. And yet, then when we get into school and stuff, you know, at a certain point, you get shut down. You know, at a certain point, you, you, you just get shut down. I, you know, for me, I, it happened to me when I was, when, when I was a kid uh, in church. I was, I was raised as a Roman Catholic. And when we were in Sunday school, we learned the Ten Commandments. And one of the commandments that they taught us was that, Thou shalt not bow before any graven images. And then they took us to the church and we had to genuflect in front of the statues before we sat down. And so I asked the priests, why? I, I thought we weren't supposed to bow before any graven images, but, but isn't that what we're doing right now when we do this thing? And I'll never forget it. He just said to me, this is just one of the mysteries of the church. And that really upset me as a kid because I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why mystery to me is something that you want to solve. And Absolutely. I don't yeah. mean this as a dig on anybody's religion, but I'm just saying that that's, that's just, you know, it happens in school. It happens in business at a certain point that gets shut down in us. And yet that ability, that natural curiosity is so powerful. And that's what we try to do is help people unleash that in a constructive and collegial way to not, to not be the contrarian asshole for lack of a better word, in the room, but to be the constructive contrarian who's challenging the organization and helping it to do better. Yeah, I think a lot of that goes back to this, this desire for conformity by the system and and then individuals who want to fit in. And, you know, you did the opposite to this, Ellie. You could have quite easily taken the easy route. I want to fit in. It's hard enough as it is, so I'm not going to keep mouthing off all the time. And uh, the, we see the institutionalization of people. We see what we call sheep-like passivity. You know, people who want to speak up and they try. And, you know, we've seen this with organizations where they recruit great people. And then within a couple of years, those people have left. And then you do the exit interviews and they go, well, why did you leave, Steve? Well, because I was brought in for my capability to do X and Y. And every time I spoke up, I got shut down. And then I didn't get the promotion I was promised. And I was getting aggro from my boss. And I'm like, well, what a waste. What a waste of effort on, you know, human intelligence, equity in the recruitment process.
And we see that so often. So I think having this capability, you see those people coming out that I call it the Terminator red eye that come <laughs> back to life again. That little kid inside is like <laughs> jumping up saying, really, I can do this. And we see this yeah. with our clients, don't we? It's just so, I've got goosebumps now talking about it. Just get that feeling of, wow, this is it. It's happening. And the, the powder kegs building up and then it just releases and greatness comes out of it. It really does. And it's that, you know, we're not, if you think about everybody that we've, has joined us on this journey, there is a, an overwhelming desire to make sense of the world and what we're operating in and help others. I mean, absolutely, pretty much everybody that we've taught and facilitated sessions for, they just want to make the world a little bit better and a little bit easier to understand. And they want to develop people and pretty much every single person that comes through is, let's release that potential. Let's let you, help you reach your potential, uh, but do it in a way that is, as you said, Bryce, is collegiate. It, it's there to help. It's collaboration. You know, this world is difficult enough. You mentioned it, Marco, the Vuka H world is difficult enough. So we've got to be able to communicate and, and understand one another. We need to be able to communicate in a way that people understand. So a lot of the things we do, you know, actually just asking some of those questions. What is the problem we're trying to solve here? Actually, I think it's this. I think so. Well, we, we're not even agreed yeah, on that. No so alignment. Let's just, yeah. it's, you know, the world is so busy and difficult. Let's narrow the yeah. focus or let's just get us all there to the same point. And that's the beauty of these tools is that you can ask those questions and you're not seen as a contrarian asshole. You're not seen as a person that's just disruptive. You're not the, dis you're disrupting for the right reasons, but it doesn't come across as disrupting. It's just coming across as let's make sense of this. So we all understand. So we're all together. We're moving forward together. And that's the beauty of these tools yeah. that all of them enable you to engage better, to communicate better, to understand, to appreciate, you know, because sometimes we come into this and we're not in the same space. We're not all coming no. at the same, at, at the same problem, at the same angle, at the same rate. Yeah. So, so what we often see, Ellie, isn't it? It's this lack of alignment across individuals, across groups. And if you're not aligned before you start, doing something in this complex world that you talked about, it's just going to be so hard from the outset. And it's hard enough as you go down range, but if you're starting out the stumbling blocks rather than the starting blocks, because you're not aligned, you're not understanding what you're all doing together, you don't understand each other, then it's a real, real blocker to progress, I think. Absolutely. But it's also important to make a distinction between alignment, which is good, and what's the word? compliance or yeah, let's yeah. use compliance where people yeah. aren't aligned, but they, they bite their tongue as Ellie talked about earlier because they, it, they just know it's a fool's errand to disagree. And that's, that's not yeah. a good thing. So we want to have alignment, but we also want to encourage the diversity of the thought. So one of the key principles of red team thinking is to move from divergent thinking to convergent thinking. So we start by hearing everyone's perspective, by making sure everybody's voice is heard. And in that, we find the best ideas and we coalesce as a group around those. And then we create alignment around those ideas and move forward. That's, that to me is the real power of this approach is that you're both getting that diverse perspective, you're leveraging it, which is really, I think yeah. the whole point of diversity and inclusion is getting that diverse perspectives into the mix, but then 
you're coalescing on one way forward and creating alignment with that. Exactly that, Bryce. And that gives you the plan. That gives you the arrow going forward of the plan. But then for me, what you've done then, you've aligned the people. They're on board. They feel engaged. They feel heard. It goes back to that you know, previous story you told. You know, That lady just being heard and her point had been argued and counted or dismissed or listened to. She doesn't care. She's been heard. It's been considered. And she understands the reasons why we're progressing with it or we're not. And I think that's such a valuable thing is that however great your plan is and alignment's there, if those diverse thoughts haven't been collated, collected and understood and argued and dissented against, which we see, and that's the best part of this, then you're not going to get your people energized and engaged in the way that you could do. And that's, that, I think that's what we're referring back to you were talking about earlier, this, this joie de vivre we see in the room when colleagues do this. It's just amazing. That's really, yeah. And engagement is, is yeah, such a big thing for people, isn't it? Employee voice, you know, colleagues voice. And as you've both sort of said, just being heard is sometimes enough. People know that you can't change anything, but they say their piece. I've been heard. It's been acknowledged. I've been recognised. I've been validated and valued. You know, we a lot of organisations can't hand out the big bonuses and bits pieces like that. But actually, a lot of people don't want that. They just want to be recognised and appreciated for what they yeah. can bring to the party. But sometimes, you know, they're invited to the party, but they're not allowed to pick up a drink or whatever. It's, you know, if, you, if you're going to invite somebody along, let them yeah. enjoy the full experience. And that's what red team thinking does. It allows everybody to engage and enjoy the experience. You know, dip in and out as much as you want. You know, go and do your need slide across the dance floor. Go and mind sweep at the bar, whatever you want. Throw yourself full into it or just stand back. But you're there. You're allowed to be there. You're included. It's up to you how much you you jump in or, or don't. And, you know, even the shyest person that, at the side of the dance floor that won't get in there will be doing a knee slide by the end of the night. Always. I love you. that. And that's so powerful because that really is now you don't just have diversity, but you have inclusion, right? 100%. right. 100%. Absolutely. And that's what it's about. You know, yeah. this element of psychological safety where people aren't putting their hand up and asking what that stupid question. I don't want to ask that's a stupid question. There are no stupid questions. And we were doing the client last week. And remember, people kept apologizing. They go, I'm sorry, but I, I said, right, can we just stop? No apologies. Say what you're going to say. Yeah, but it's a bit left field. Good. The further left, the better. The further right extremes we want. And then they say something. And before you know it, they've triggered 17 or 18 other people in the room to think differently again. And people are moving in this sort of mind space where they're like, wow, I wasn't thinking like this half an hour ago. Um, one of the quotes last week, wasn't it from a, was it, what was it, uh, stunned to smarter in 90 minutes. And this lady, <laughs> she said, she said, I was stunned. When you put everything in front of me, I was overwhelmed. There was so much stuff from the divergence piece that the team had come up with. And she said, you could see her go in that dark space. Oh, I can't do this. It's too, it's too much. And then we went through it, filtering step by step and people's inputs. And then afterwards, she came out in this really tiny focused end game. And she's like, I can't believe we've done that. And I said, yeah, how soon did you do that? She's like, that was less than 90 minutes. I can't, I can't believe we did that. I'm like, well, you've just done it. And it's that easy. And just the big smiles and the warmth that people go, yeah, wow, can we do more of this? And we just move on to the next thing. Amazing. Well, this gets into one of our core beliefs, which is that in almost any organization, companies, governments, militaries, I've yet to encounter an organization 
and I've been doing this for a long time, I've yet to encounter an organization that didn't have the answers it needed inside. And that's why we call ourselves the unconsultants is because we don't come and tell people what to do. We come and help people tell themselves what to do. And it's interesting because I had this, I had this conversation with Dr. Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel prize winner, uh, author of one of the best books in the world. I think thinking fast and slow, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. And when he and I first met, we were having breakfast at a cafe in New York near NYU where he was teaching. And by the way, if you want to really feel stupid for the rest of the day, have breakfast with a Nobel Prize winner. <laughs> we were having breakfast and I was explaining my ideas about red team thinking to him. And I asked him if he thought that this could help counter cognitive bias and, and the mental heuristics that prevent us from making better decisions. And he said, perhaps, but the problem is it's not going to matter. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, because if you're working with a, a client, he said, I assume you're not just going to write this book for the sake of writing the book. I assume you plan to work with companies and stuff to, to do this. I said, yeah. He said, well, if you work with a corporation and they don't like what is surfaced by this analysis, it doesn't matter how valid it is. It doesn't matter how penetrating the insights are. They're just going to dismiss it and say, he doesn't understand our business. He doesn't understand our organization. And I said, but that's never going to happen. And he said, what do you mean it's not going to happen? It happens to me all the time and I have a Nobel Prize. <laughs> you know, people, people who hire me ignore what I have to say all the time. And I said, but that's the thing is we're not going to tell anybody the answers. I know they're right. I don't know their business. I don't know their organization. I don't know their industry. What I know is a set of tools and techniques that can help them surface the answers that they have within their own organization, but they're going to own those because those are their answers. And I, and he said, what does that look like? And I said, well, for instance, I was just working with this company yesterday and we were reviewing their turnaround strategy and the chief marketing officer of the company surfaced a major problem with the turnaround strategy. And I stopped the meeting and I said, did everybody hear what she just said? And everybody nodded. CEO, all of his C-suite were there. I said, does anybody disagree with that? Everybody shook their head. I said, does everybody agree that she just surfaced a major problem with this plan? Absolutely, the CEO said. I said, right, let's make a note of this here. Bryce didn't tell you this. Red Team Thinking didn't tell you this. She told you this. She's your chief marketing officer. You've all agreed that this is an issue. Now you have to own this issue and you have to solve it. And that's very different than having, you know, some some 20-somethings in shiny suits and, and brand new laptops coming in uh, with the ink still wet on their MBAs and telling you, oh, here's what's wrong with your plan. You need to do this. That, that, you said it there, Bryce. You own it. Ownership is what gets people taking accountability and responsibility with their actions. And I think that's one of the most, that's how you get an engaged and confident workforce is by allowing that ability to take ownership just means that people are going to do more. They're going to go that extra yard. They're going to put more effort in because it's theirs. It's their baby, you know, and you know, anybody dare call that baby ugly and you're going to have to face into that team who've created this thing and taken it forward. And I think that's the real power shift that you can see 
when you see people engaging with these tools and they, they're, they're cognitive, they go, okay, how's this going to help me? And then you see it, that, that, that penny drops. As you say, the cherries come in and everyone does that at their own different stages as well, don't they, Ellie? I mean, it's great when you watch a team of 20, you know, day one, someone will hit that cherry straight away. Still on day four, somebody's not there yet. And we've seen all different sort of variances in between, but that's the nature of the human brain, I guess. Yeah. And I think, you know, if we bring it back down to sort of where we perhaps started this on the diversity, equality, equity, inclusion, red team thinking absolutely brings that diversity in. It brings all those experiences in, in that sort of divergent thinking is coming into convergent thinking. Everybody's included because everybody has an voice. But the more important thing is everyone is equal in that yes. room. From the CEO down, we have that equality that comes through because everybody's given the same question. Everybody's given the same chance to do whatever they need to, the same opportunity. You're not shut down because so-and-so is talking. We actively, through our principles of how we administer and facilitate red team thinking, that brings that equity in and everyone's equal, which is just amazing. That doesn't happen anywhere else. You go into a room and the egos are parked by what happens and everybody from the you know the first the, the last person through the door the most junior to the most senior in that room are all at the same level and they're all approaching things yes they might have a little bit more experience or they might have seen something like this before but that's where the diversity of experience and thought comes in but then we get something different coming through and and I think that's the the biggest bit for me is that you hit those three cherries of DEI through using these tools, full stop. It doesn't matter which way you look at it. Wow. I could not have said that better, Ellie. That is so true. And, and it's so powerful. And we've solved yet another one of the world's problems here. So on that note, thank you so much for joining us. It has been a tremendous pleasure. As always, we've got to have you back on the show and continue this conversation, don't we, Marcus? Indeed, Ellie, as always, my friend, it's always a pleasure and never a chore to listen to you and have a good chat, even though you gave me lots of banter, but I will have my sweet revenge in the future. Lovely to see you and can't wait to see you again. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Leader podcast sponsored by Red Team Thinking. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you don't miss the next idea-filled episode. Also, check out Bryce and Marcus's YouTube channel, Red Team TV. There you'll find video of today's podcast as well as previous episodes. And don't forget to visit redteamthinking.com to learn more about Red Team Thinking work and Marcus and Bryce's upcoming online courses. While you're there, take our free quiz to find out how you rate as a Red Team Thinker and if your organization has a Red Team culture. Because who thinks wins? <laughs>